A heads up to our listeners that tonight's rebroadcast of Access Utah does contain some language that some listeners may find objectable. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In his new book, The Evolution of Beauty, Richard Prom, uh, his award-winning career as an ornithologist and his lifelong passion for bird watching has come together in a thrilling intellectual adventure. Scientific dogma holds that every detail of an animal's mating displays, every spot on the peacock's tail, is an advertisement of its genetic and material superiority to potential mates. But 30 years of research and fieldwork around the world led Prom to question this idea. Uh, many traits struck Prom as outlandishly unlikely to provide practical information. His search for answers led him to a little acclaimed theory of Darwin's, aesthetic mate choice, or the taste for the beautiful. Darwin proposed that choosing a mate for the mere pleasure of it creates an independent engine for evolutionary change. The book is The Evolution of Beauty, How Darwin's Forgotten Theory of Mate Choice Shapes the Animal World and Us. Richard O. Prum is William Robertson co-professor of ornithology at Yale University, head curator of vertebrate zoology at uh, Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History. He's winner of the MacArthur and Guggenheim Fellowships and help discover dinosaur feathers and their colors. You can find him at prumlab.yale.edu. And uh, Dr. Prum, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, welcome. Uh, we uh, thank you for being with us. Very interesting book. I want to start uh, just briefly uh, looking at a little bit of your biography. You write about yourself in your introduction. Must have been a very interesting kid in Vermont. Uh, you say you, <laughs> you you got a pair of glasses. That led you to lifelong obsession with birds and uh, lifelong birder. Yeah, well, when you're when you're uh, when you're a kid, you don't usually think of these events as having uh, causes. You just develop the interest you you have. And uh, but uh, in retrospect, I, I don't think it's an accident that uh, I didn't get into bird watching until until I got glasses, and suddenly the the world came into focus, and very soon thereafter. Uh, I was hooked, and I was hooked on the adventure, uh, the hunt of going out and trying to find birds, and uh, I realized that I was just sort of uh, somebody that liked biodiversity, and uh, I soon developed uh, friendships with uh, local bird watchers, and, uh, and, uh, and, I, and, I, and I stuck with it. So, uh, for those of us who are not bird watchers, and there are many bird watchers <laughs> in in America around the world, what's what what is the attraction? It's it's a it's a thrilling pursuit. It is it is actually thrilling. You know, uh, uh, of course, there are uh, uh, on any on any day dozens of possible uh, species to see in any practically any place in the United States, and sometimes it's uh, hundreds if you're if you're avid and have the right time of year. Uh, so it's it's a hunt, uh, and but what's uh, of course lovely about it is that every bird is a quiz. Uh, you never know where they present themselves in new ways, and they have very varieties of plumage, and they have beautiful songs, uh, and so uh, it's uh, it's intriguing. Uh, hunters will w- would relate to it, except that in this case you're you're hunting for some uh, some kind of experience, the ex- you know experience of observing the bird and seeing its behavior and watching it in, in its in its daily life. Bird watchers usually have a life list, right? You you try to <laughs> compile a list of well, birds yeah, you've seen. We, we keep notes, and mm-hmm. and of course, birding uh, automatically uh, gets uh, builds to uh, wanting to see the rarest bird and the and the and the earliest record and the latest record. And we uh, people like to keep lots of notes. Lots of it is now online uh, through uh, through. Uh, 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 Services like eBird that collect people's uh, bird uh, sightings and and uh, uh, you know give them access to others. But yes, the life list is one of the most important lists. That's the list of all the species you've seen in your life, and um, and that's a, a it's a it's it's a, it's a fun motivation to get people back out into the wild. One more question on this before we get to the science, fascinating science. Um, I, I learned that uh, on that life list, if if you know you see a new bird, I guess that's that's a lifer. Is that a term? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So, are are there? I guess you're still in pursuit of some birds. You've seen many birds. You well, made this your life's pursuit. You know, pursuit. I was I, I was in Portland, Oregon, uh, earlier this week, and at a scientific meeting, and uh, took a day off and went to see some new birds, <laughs> white-headed woodpecker in the Ponderosa Pines and uh, near Sisters in Oregon. Yeah. So I'm still uh, 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 really motivated to 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 to, to, to see those to see all those birds. Uh, so you got into uh, kind of a blending of your your you know, private passion with your scientific career. You got into ornithology. Um, yes, go ahead. 
yeah, so it was really a college that I realized that uh, that uh, evolution was the area of biology that was uh, really captured the uh, the aspects of birds that I had found so privately fascinating, right? Uh, with their diversity, how do we get so many? How do you get the different kinds? Why why they live here and not there? And uh, how do they get to be that way? And and their colors and their feathers and their songs. Uh, and uh, so it was really then that I uh, realized, wow, this is a scientific career. This is something you can do for a living, in fact. <laughs> and uh, and I've, I've never considered uh, any other kind of employment. Uh, so I want to uh, talk about this. Uh, you call it aesthetic evolution, uh, right? So first of all, and yeah. you do you in the book, you, you uh, note in the book that uh, this, this view that you're espousing, uh, this theory, is not the, I guess, the majority View. Yeah, so one of, the, one of the goals of the book, of course, is to uh, try to uh, um, communicate to the public about a, a scientific controversy or something I'd like to be controversial. Um, you know, Darwin, after publishing The Origin of Species, uh, had, uh, which included some brilliant ideas, adaptation by natural selection, and the tree of life, the idea that all life was descended from a single origin and had diversified over time. Uh, he, at the end of the book, he had, he had a few problems. One, he had no theory of genetics, no hypothesis about how uh, uh, offspring uh, come to resemble their parents, you know, which, and that was essential for his theory to work. Um, he also didn't have an explicit idea about the evolution of people, uh, and his even largest problem was really no theory of the, uh, of the biology or the origin of beauty. Uh, and by beauty, he was referring to those ornamental features of uh, birds like uh, like the peacock uh, that um, that uh, are clearly a problem for survival, uh, but seem to function in communication. Seem to function because they're beautiful. Uh, so he worried about it for uh, 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 you know more than a decade. In fact, he wrote to an American colleague that whenever he whenever I See the spot on a peacock's tail. It makes me sick. Uh, he was so <laughs> upset by the challenge to his theory of this problem. So he he thought about it a long time and came up with a brilliant uh, additional book, The Descent of Man, in which he tackled both the origin of of humans and the evolution by sexual selection, which was a new idea about how uh, evolution could work. So let's let's take the peacock. Um, so outline the differences under, I guess under the you know, the formal theory, uh, adaptive evolution. Um, that that big display must uh, demonstrate some fitness. It's it's not just beauty for beauty's sake. It's it's uh, it's, it's it's describing or, or displaying well, to the to the peahens something uh, else. Yeah, well, the, 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 it's, it's clear that having a four-foot-long tail with these brilliant iridescent colors and patterns uh, can't be helping uh, the peacock uh, escape predators or uh, get food, right? So it's clear that it, this is a, the tail is impractical. Uh, and so what, what, uh, uh, what Darwin hypothesized was that the tail evolves because it functions in communication, in particular in sexual communication. That is, uh, the, if females have the opportunity to choose their mates, uh, and they choose the mates uh, with the tails that they like, uh, he hypothesized that the tail evolves uh, through this process of, of mate choice or sexual selection by mate choice. So this, instead of being uh, uh, evolution by of the survival of the fittest, uh, this was evolution of the most beautiful. Um, and he ex- stated this explicitly in terms of the aesthetic experiences of the uh, of the uh, observers so he described uh, these ability to choose the the right tail or the, or the best tail uh, as an aesthetic uh, uh, faculty uh, he described bird song as having the ability to charm the females uh, and so he used the the language of of, of aesthetics the language of art uh, and of the human experience of beauty uh, to describe the way uh, Birds evolve, uh, and and many other animals. Why did uh, why did uh, origin of the species uh, continue to be influential? While our descent of man, some of the ideas there uh, declined. Well, it, 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 you know the 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 uh, the, the, the 
Darwin's uh, hypotheses about uh, about sexual selection were at least partly adopted immediately. He proposed two mechanisms of sexual selection. One was male-male competition, uh, combat, and this would give rise to the evolution of armaments like antlers or large body size. This hypothesis was a winner and uh, was uh, immediately adopted and I think actually contributed greatly to the notion uh, of the overall um, uh, uh, logic of, 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 of evolution itself. However, his idea about mate choice, mostly female mate choice, um, was, uh, was roundly criticized and rejected almost universally uh, at the time, and uh, was really considered to be one of Darwin's great mistakes. The, the way in which that happened was that uh, uh, people couldn't imagine that uh, animals had the cognitive capacity, the brains, if you will, to, to make choices. They also uh, were quite off, uh, put off by the notion that female choice in general was a force in the evolution uh, of nature. So some of the uh, uh, um, critiques were explicitly misogynistic. Uh, so uh, uh, one early reviewer described the, the idea of female mate choice as vicious feminine caprice. And the idea then was vicious uh, was a word that, that meant full of vice. So there was a sort of a whiff of a- immorality to, to Darwin's idea. So this was uh, rejected uh, by most of, the, uh, most of the scientists at the time, including Darwin's great supporters. For example, Alfred Russell Wallace was a, uh, a Victorian naturalist and the co-discoverer of uh, adaptation by natural selection. But um, he was a great critic of, of Darwin's view of mate choice. And in particular, he hypothesized that if it, there were any possible ornaments, the only way they could work would be to uh, express um, objective information that is true and honest information about quality of the mate. And therefore, this would therefore be a kind of uh, adaptation. You, the female would be uh, or would, uh, would be selecting the very best mate, and that would give rise to a, a, um, a, a kind of mate choice that was merely a, a sort of natural selection. This was the idea that, that ended up killing natural selection for about a century, and when it was brought back into the main, uh, to the fold of science in the 70s and 80s, uh, it's the idea that came to characterize the way we think about na- uh, sexual selection today as a kind of natural selection and, and merely as one more uh, uh, adaptive uh, uh, process. So this is uh, the reason this was uh, suppressed or gone away from. One of the reasons you're saying is the Victorian sensibilities? Absolutely. The Victorians' uh, males were immediately... um, uh, rewarded, or, or, or they certainly had, they certainly felt they were rewarded by the notion that male-male competition structured the natural world. But they couldn't imagine uh, that uh, that, uh, that that female choice could be a force in the world. Uh, and as a result, um, it was uh, it was rejected. Um, and it really was also the notion that science should or would require. Uh, a single great idea. That is, they portrayed Darwin as a, as a, uh, a traitor to his great legacy, uh, literally. Uh, that is, uh, a traitor to natural selection, which was, should be an idea with, uh, with uh, uh, broad uh, applications, an explanation of all of biodiversity. Uh, so they saw um, um, uh, uh, Darwin as disappointing them. <laughs> And uh, uh, part of the mission of the book is to bring this aesthetic view back into the uh, mainstream of science and into the cultural conversation. I want to explore this uh, aesthetic uh, selection. I uh, just want to uh, spend just a minute more on this idea. We, I don't think we like to think of this, do we, that our scientists' worldview coloring, uh, changing the science? It's supposed to be the other way around, isn't it? Does, does this sort of thing... Right. Well, you know, scientists are human, too, and uh, we all uh, live in our times and in our cultures and uh, in our communities and with their families and uh, uh, of course w- the uh, objective is uh, to be insulated from uh, from mere opinion and, and, and social trends uh, uh, but uh, evolutionary biologists just like other 
uh, I think anybody else, we're people too. And, uh, and uh, I think the, the, uh, the strategy here is, to, is not to pretend that we're up on some uh, uh, Olympus isolated from the culture, but to, 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 to understand for ourselves our own, uh, the way in which this influences uh, each of us. And, of course, this was, uh, we can see that in the history of science always. Uh, looking back, we can see how their narrow-mindedness or ignorance about certain positions influenced their view and, and clouded their views. Uh, and so we're pretty much certain, I am pretty much certain, that that's happening today to ourselves, and our job is to <laughs> think clearly enough so that we can uh, uh, avoid those, uh, those, uh, those uh, uh, difficulties as long as we can. Uh, this might be a good time to bring this in. I don't, I don't know if you, uh, you know, wrote this specifically in the context of what we're talking about right now, but this this struck me in any case near the end of your book. You say, I realized along the way, you're just kind of summing up, realized along the way that bird watching and science are both ways of exploring yourself in the world, parallel paths to find exp- self-expression and meaning through engagement with the diversity and complexity of the natural world uh, around yeah. us. Yeah, I, 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 I wrote that in particular because I'm trying to explain why, um, uh, or explain to readers why uh, it's possible to have a scientist that says all sorts of things that other scientists don't agree with, right? How is it that I came to this uh, distinctive or, you know, outlier opinion within, within the field? And... Um, I want people to know that uh, to, you know scientists have a lot of choices every day. What are they going to go to the office and the lab and or the field and do when they uh, when they when they get there? And uh, the we 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 pers- you know scientists that like like the arts or like other kinds of uh, creative endeavors um, is a, uh, is influenced by the scientists by our personalities by by what what we why what we love what we enjoy uh and that doesn't make it any less objective it just makes it uh, patchy that uh, some some areas get studied a lot because a lot of people are enthusiastic about it and uh and other areas not so much because there are fewer uh and uh so some of the importance of science comes out of the result of this you know the, our social organization so i wanted to describe that uh, indeed um, uh, scientific careers are um, are you know sort of personal paths of discovery, and uh, the way we apply ourselves leads to different outcomes. And uh, so, uh, um, uh, for me, I've been always attracted by the beauty of birds, and. Uh, and and how it arises in nature, and I found that that's something that wasn't just a personal experience; it was a, was a scientific subject too. And so, as a result, I've been really interested in this deeply Darwinian idea that birds are beautiful because they're beautiful to themselves; that they have had an active role and agency in 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 driving their evolution. Uh, uh, most of my colleagues believe that the ornaments of birds, things like the peacock's tail and the beautiful song of a wood thrush, um, have evolved because they provide information about quality. And in that view, all of the world is, uh, is or this aspect of the world, is really just another kind of utility, right? And, and in, in Darwin's view, uh, these things exist because they are attractive and for no other purpose. And so... It, whether the world is bristling with information or bristling with uh, exuberant beauty is a really uh, fascinating scientific question. And it's one that few people uh, have been interested in asking uh, recently. And, and that's why uh, your personal makeup and why you like, uh, what, what, what makes you curious uh, influences your science. And that's why I wanted to uh, uh, sort of explain myself to readers and and maybe hopefully encourage them to to join me and uh, in this uh, in this uh, view of nature. We'll uh, we take a break here soon. We'll come back. I want to get some specific examples. You cite many examples and some fascinating science here to support uh, to support uh, your central thesis here. The book is The Evolution of Beauty: How Darwin's Forgotten Theory of Mate Choice Shapes the Animal World and Us. And the author is Richard Prum. Before we go to break, I want to get into you talking in the book about your personal experience as a bird watcher, also as a scientist, in this idea of book knowledge of, say, birds, and actually experiencing the bird, seeing the bird uh, in, in nature. You, you say that uh, English doesn't have a differentiation of two birds for that. Many other languages do. Yeah. 
Yeah, so so for example, um in uh in in Spanish, uh there is saber and conocer and saber is to know uh, a fact like the height of Everest or, you know, the molecular weight of uh, of neon, right? But uh but uh conocer is what is the verb you use to know uh, to know someone, or to know a place, or to be, or to know a restaurant, right? To be familiar with, um, and that goes straight through lots of languages uh, in savoir and in connaître in French, or wissen und kennen in German. But in English, we have only one kind of knowing, and one of the uh, great things about it being being a birdwatcher scientist is that. Um, I realized my bird watching was uh, a knowing by familiarity. That was uh, conocer, and that that uh, that experience was really an attribute or a, or a positive force in 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 our traditional book knowledge, right? And so I think uh, natural history is the kind of science that combines. Uh, those two kinds of knowing the the personal experience and 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 the the fact of book knowledge and those two things create a really fertile intellectual environment in which to uh, make discoveries and to uh, create knowledge and that comes from uh, the the same sorts of uh, people who study botany or study bugs and entomology or 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 geology these are people whose life experience becomes part of their science and uh, uh, lots of scientists are sort of afraid of that, and I wanted to explain that that's uh, something we should be embracing. Just going to break, I want to uh, read this quote, then we'll, uh, we'll treat this, and much more following the break. Uh, you have said, do you want to put sub- the subjective experience of animals back in the center of biology? We'll uh, talk more about that and much more with Richard Prom, author of The Evolution of Beauty, following this break. You wouldn't know it gazing up at the starry sky, but above our heads there's a floating junkyard of space debris. The leftover pieces from defunct satellites and decades of space missions are still up there, circling our planet and creating a hazard for functioning satellites. A collision with even a small piece of debris could destroy a satellite and create additional debris. Aerospace engineering researchers at USU are joining the global effort to keep a closer watch on space junk. They recently constructed a telescope near Bear Lake that tracks space debris and gathers data about its position and velocity. The data will help researchers improve the theories and technologies used to monitor orbital debris. Support on Utah Public Radio for Creating Tomorrow is provided in part by our members and the College of Engineering at Utah State University, offering undergraduate and graduate degrees in mechanical and aerospace engineering. More at engineering.usu.edu. This is Ted Twinting, and I am a development officer with Utah Public Radio. Underwriting with UPR allows you and your business to capture the attention and ears of informed, educated, and savvy consumers across the state of Utah. To learn more about becoming a sponsor with UPR, call our development team at 435-797-3141. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We are talking for the hour with Richard Prom. He is an ornithologist. He's William Robertson, co-professor of ornithology at Yale University. And he's winner of the MacArthur Guggenheim Fellowships. He is the head curator of vertebrate zoology at the Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History. Author most recently of an interesting book, The Evolution of Beauty, How Darwin's Forgotten Theory of Mate Choice Shapes the Animal World and Us. You're welcome to join the conversation by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Uh, Dr. Prom, I uh, quoted you before the break. You want to put the subjective experience of animals back in the center of biology. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, the subjective experience is the is the word we refer to or use to refer to that uh, uh, what it is like uh, to be an individual organism uh, with a certain set of sensations, uh, perceptions, uh, uh, and really uh, motivations. Right. So. Um, the, uh, the 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 modern view that beauty in nature is a kind of utility that it uh, that the, whether it's the peacock or human beings like the things they like because those uh, those um, attributes are objectively better uh, really gives the idea that uh, that we don't need to unwrap what 
uh, animals are really thinking, what they're really feeling, what they're really perceiving. Of course, uh, Darwin's view that the peacock's tail evolves because females like it uh, puts that um, subjective experience, that internal uh, mechanism by which they decide what it is they like at the center of scientific explanation. So the honest advertisement view, the view of uh, beauty as a kind of utility, um, uh, really means we don't have to unpack uh, what animals really want. We know that what they want is is uh, the best, uh, a mere improvement. It's got to be about the best. But if animals are preferring uh, the tail or the song based on what they like, then that means that they're, they're agents in their own evolution. They're uh, independent players, if you will. And so their opinions, or what turn out to be their opinions, uh, uh, matter. And uh, so... Uh, the aesthetic view of evolutionary biology uh, uh, requires that we study this. Of course, it's tough. We can't interview birds. We can't do. Uh, we can't ask them, "Do you like A or B?" Right. And so we have to be tricky and sort of uh, 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 get around to it uh, in indirect ways. Um, of course, the history of biology is such that people have been very hesitant to associate to animals. Uh, or uh, any kind of higher cognitive abilities, uh, but certainly uh, all of ornithology and uh, you know animal behavior have gradually been understanding the real uh, uh, complexity of the cognitive uh, evaluation mechanisms that animals have. Uh, so, although people don't uh, don't uh, um, criticize. Uh, animals as not making choices anymore, or scientists don't, um, they still are uncomfortable with examining what's going on inside the head of birds. And even though it's a hard problem, I think it should be a central, or it, it's a, it is a central problem in evolutionary biology. I want to uh, have you uh, describe for me some of the fascinating birds that you describe in, in the book, but I want to set this up this way. Uh, you say in your introduction you have a problem, scientific problem. Uh, you go on to say that uh, uh, you, you know, this this view is uh, right now uh, somewhat a minority view, but uh, I just want to read this. This is uh, some good writing. Uh, you say that uh, these traits that the male birds have, it's mostly males that have the, you know, the coloring, the plumage, and, and so forth, uh, functions like a birdie internet dating profile, providing multiple pieces of information that a discerning female bird of paradise needs to know. Who are his people? Does he come from a good egg? Was he raised in a good nest? Does he have a good diet? Does he take care of himself? Does he have sexually transmitted diseases, uh, et cetera, et cetera? According to this biomatch.com theory of ornament, beauty is all about utility. Of course, you're pushing back on that view, right? Right, exactly. And, and, and to me, uh, a world that is uh, filled with uh, uh, lots of different aesthetic communities that are making uh, essentially I- I- exuberant fashion choices is completely different from the one in which it's uh, a grueling uh, 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 set of data uh, that are being used uh, to, 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 to gain personal and individual advantage. Um, and that, whether that, it, to me, it really matters what, what the world is like. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that uh, uh, biologists in their enthusiasm have been pushing this biologymatch.com profile idea uh, beyond its limits. And that uh, really um, the scientific trend, I hope, will shift in the other direction. So uh, you write in the book about, uh, and you have some uh, beautiful pictures here as well. By the way, the, again, the book is The Evolution of Beauty. We're talking with the author, Richard uh, Prom. Uh, club-winged mannequins sing with their wings. Yeah, this is a, a bizarre uh, bird in a family that I've spent many decades studying. Uh, mannequins are small, chickadee-sized birds that feed on fruits and berries. They live in Central and South America in the forests, and uh, because the females feed their young on fruit, uh, they can get by with just one parent because fruit wants to be eaten, right? Uh, unlike insects, which don't want to be eaten. So if you can feed your baby's fruit, you have an easier life of it. Uh, and so since the females do all the nesting, they can select which mate they prefer. And as a result, the males have evolved these elaborate dances uh, in 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 aggregations or arenas where it's called a, a lek. So these lek breeding birds have these uh, unusual uh, colors and dance uh, behaviors. Uh, the club-winged is a, a, uh, has a specially innovative uh, way of advertising itself. It sings a beautiful um, uh, 
a multi-note song that sounds sort of like pick, pick, wang, sort of an electronical uh, feedback sound, uh, and they actually create the sound with their wing feathers. Um, it's a it's a very innovative way to sing, and uh, it's very unusual. It's evolved as a result of female choice for those males with the songs that they like, and in 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 in, in some species that's evolved to be very snapping sounds that sound like a, you know like a firecracker, uh, just pop pop pop. Uh, but in this species, it's actually become a piece of uh, of, of sound uh, or a, uh, a tune. It has a very specific frequency. So we've been studying the clubbing mannequin, uh, my students and I, for years, um, and understand how it makes its sound. It actually uh, stridulates like a cricket. That is, the feathers rub together, and one of the feathers rubs on a larger feather, uh, creating um, the same kind of mechanical action as a bow on a violin, and creates that... Um, and makes that, 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 that feather resonate at the frequency of the sound. The other thing we've discovered is that the male has evolved very bizarre wing bones in order to make this sound, to hold on to the feathers. He has huge uh, distorted ulnas. That's the, the trailing bone in the wing. And they're solid, uh, like, uh, like ivory. Uh, and that's unusual because all wing bones in birds are hollow. That even goes back to the dinosaurs had hollow wing bones. So this is a, a real transformation of his, of his limbs to make this, make this beautiful song. What we've discovered most recently is that the female also has uh, transformed her own wing bones. So she will never use these wing bones to sing a song, but she has at least some of the costs of producing the bones and, and flying around with them. Uh, and so um, one of the reasons why the, the wing bones are so uniform in other birds is because they're useful for flying. So uh, this looks like the entire species has been made worse at survival and worse at, at flying as a result of the evolution of this beautiful ornament and this very unusual uh, way of singing. So uh, then you're saying that, that some of these traits do not fit with, uh, you know, the uh, ideal natural selection, that you're saying there's a yeah, parallel it, 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 evolution going on we know that sex. We know that sexual selection is, a, is an independent force because it can move in the exact opposite direction of natural selection. That is, it can make the entire population worse at survival. And, uh, and, and as a result, um, one, of the, one of the reasons why that's interesting is because uh, it implies that something deeply important about how we should think about these scientific concepts. So it's my example of what I call the evolution of decadence, where uh, the species has actually uh, uh, in some way gone to seed. It's less good at what it was supposed to do, and yet it's, uh, yet it, uh, it's uh, done so, gotten that way, as a result of selection for these uh, beautiful songs. Um, tell me about the red-capped mannequins. They apparently moonwalk. Yes, well, this is another member of the family uh, my, uh, that, uh, that uh, displays up in the trees and on thin branches. And uh, one of my uh, former graduate students, Kim Boswick, uh, had studied them in, intensively uh, as part of a study, of, again, of clubwing mannequins. So they're closely related to clubwings. But they, uh, as they move on the branch, they will, they will uh, uh, cop a pose with the tail pointed up and sometimes with the wing spread, and they take lots of tiny little steps, and it looks like they're rolling backwards on roller skates was the way we were always said. But, of course, uh, uh, Kim comes from uh, the, the right generation, so what she was trying to describe it once, she described them as moonwalking, and now uh, that, has gone, uh, that has gone popular, that's gone viral, and now uh, uh, the, the mannequins are known as the moonwalking birds. Uh, of course, this is all about uh, pleasing the female. She's the one that has been selecting on their dances over time uh, to create those uh, elaborate changes in their behavior. So for most bird species, uh, it is the female who's, who's doing the choosing, right? Right, but there, that's... Um, uh, uh, merely a convenience or, 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 or a trend from, from bird biology, there are certainly plenty of exceptions. For example, if you think about a puffin or a penguin, often have ornamental, uh, colorful plumages and beaks and, and, and such. Uh, those are examples of ornaments that are found this, identically in males and females. So in that case, you have mutual mate choice, both males and females selecting on an ornament 
uh, in the process of mate choice. There are also different uh, groups of birds in which the males make the choices. So, for example, uh, uh, birds called jacanas, which uh, have very long toes and walk on lily pads and marshes with it throughout the tropics in the, in, in, uh, the New World and Old World, uh, and also the phalaropes, which are shorebirds that nest way up in the Arctic. In these cases, the females uh, establish a territory and then attract multiple males to, uh, to them. The, the uh, males build the nests. Uh, the females lay the eggs, and then the males do all of the parental work. The female basically uh, defends the territory uh, for uh, reproduction to take place in. So in this case, in these cases, the female is larger, and the female sings the songs, and in, in some cases even has weapons uh, that she uses to defend the territory. So there's lots of variation in breeding system, and each one of these creates different opportunities for sexual selection. But birds uh, have... Uh, 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 certainly are, are, are well known for having a predominance of female choice, and it's under those conditions that you get the most aesthetically extreme birds on, of the world, the birds of paradise, bowerbirds, uh, and uh, uh, mannequins like the, the ones uh, that I've been studying. So this, uh, talking about, of course, you know, sex in any species is high stakes, right? So that's, that's, how, you, uh, that's how you continue the species, right? Um, and exactly. so it gets us into sexual politics. And that's, just using that word is I'm overlaying, you know, a human, uh, uh, a human concept on, on the animal world. But I wonder if you could uh, talk about uh, Chapter 5, you, which, which you label yeah. make, make Way for Duck Sex. Yes, well, you know, um, I have never worked on ducks before, but I had a very uh, enterprising and brilliant uh, uh, postdoctoral uh, uh, fellow in my lab, um, Patricia Brennan. She's now a professor at uh, Mount Holyoke College in, in Massachusetts. Uh, and she wanted to work on, on duck sex. And one of the reasons is that ducks are one of the few organisms on the, uh, or one of the few birds in the world that still has a penis. Uh, the penis evolved in the common ancestor of mammals and reptiles. It's evolved in all different ways in, 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 in reptiles, but among the birds, uh, it has mostly been lost. Uh, but ducks are one of the few ones that, 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 that have it. Unfortunately, uh, they use it in, in, in ways that are really quite violent. Uh, there's a, uh, most ducks pair up, like the, you think of the mallard or puddle duck in, in nearby pond. Um, they form a pair, uh, and that's a established by choice, right? The female's actually choosing the male she likes based on the green head and the quack, quack, quack that, uh, that she prefers. But other males that are unpaired at the time of reproduction will intercede and force uh, copulation on the female. Uh, and they're able to do this as a result of the evolution of uh, very unusual and, uh, and impressive uh, uh, penises. Um, this has been known in the literature, and actually the largest penis for any uh, vertebrate animal is uh, for its body size as a duck, uh, but wasn't, ha- wasn't explained uh, before. But what Brennan understood was, uh, or was curious to find out, is what's going on inside the female. And what she discovered was that uh, in species where uh, um, forced copulations, these kind of uh, 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 violent um, copulations occur, the, the female has evolved a vaginal morphology that prevents intromission, prevents entry completely into the reproductive tract. Uh, and the result is that even despite sexual violence, the female duck can control um, whether her offspring are fertilized by choice or by, um, or by uh, sexual coercion. Uh, the result is uh, these uh, vaginal structures imply that that uh, freedom of choice matters to animals, right? That is, there's a an evolutionary uh, consequence of getting what you want or or being forced, uh, and uh, that's a fascinating discovery. So what we really have discovered is that sexual autonomy matters to animals. Right? It's not a, uh, a political theory uh, invented by suffragettes and feminists in the 20th century and, and 19th centuries. It's, a, um, uh, it's an evolved uh, feature of social sexual species, an evolved response uh, to, um, to, to, to sexual violence in the, in the natural world. 
and that's a that's a that's a that's a fascinating uh, place to have ended up uh, some years later. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. You describe it as a as a kind of a sexual arms race, right? Exactly. So ducks. what's going on in 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 the ducks is that uh, every time. Uh, well, uh, the males evolve uh, uh, larger or more uh, 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 armed uh, uh, penises, and the females of the spe- in that species will evolve some more convoluted or complex vaginal morphology. Uh, the result then is that uh, another innovation on one side will create another innovation in another. So it's kind of like the arms race that we, you know, we, we see. However, it's distinctive in the sense that uh, males are really evolving uh, weapons that they use to control the outcome. Uh, but females are essentially evolving defenses that they use to reinsure the opportunity for choice. So it really isn't a case of an arm, a, a, a strict arms race, uh, because you have one pacifist side and one and 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 one aggressive side, right? Uh, and uh, so, uh, but. But, but females are successful. It turns out that uh, these vaginal morphologies are capable of uh, excluding uh, uh, fertilization in 98% of the forced copulations. So that's like an FDA-approvable uh, birth control method uh, that's behaviorally deployable uh, in the female's own body, right? Uh, so that's an impressive thing. And uh, we found that uh, we needed to... Um, uh, you know, basically new scientific theory, new new evolutionary theory in order to explain how that could happen. Let's take another break. When we come back, we'll have to be careful in the transition, having just talking about violent duck sex, but uh, we'll, we will um, take a brief stop at uh, apes and then uh, have uh, implications, which Dr. Prum writes about in this book, to human evolution. The book is Evolution of Beauty, How Darwin's Forgotten Theory of Mate Choice Shapes the Animal World and Us. More following this break. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, why so much nutrition science gets overturned. Nutrition studies are not very robust compared to many other fields in biological science. So what should we eat? And should sugar be banned? That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Logan Downtown Alliance, presenting the overall start of the 2017 Larry H. Miller Tour of Utah in downtown Logan, July 29th to the 31st. Information on the event and locations and times are available at logandowntown.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We reached our last segment with Richard Prum. Uh, he is an ornithologist at Yale University, author uh, most recently of The Evolution of Beauty, How Darwin's Forgotten Theory of Mate Choice Shapes the Animal World and Us. And in this last segment, I want to get to us um, with a brief stop at uh, apes. You're welcome to join this conversation at upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, you t- it's... it's Quite disturbing to remember, and of course, I think we we all know this in a vague way. But uh, among uh, some uh, species, um, there is competition among males, and the the winning male gets to to mate with the females, um, and uh, then to make sure that his genes gets passed on, uh, he he kills sometimes kills the 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 current offspring. Yeah, well, the the uh, this process of infanticide. Uh, turns out to be common in in our uh, in in some of our closest relatives, the uh, chimpanzees and gorillas. So, um, um, you know, being a, uh, a, a, a female primate uh, is is tough. Uh, in many cases, as soon as a new male takes over the social group, he will go around and and kill the offspring. The result is uh, uh, is that the females become fertile again, and he has the opportunity to reproduce. Uh, and uh, that sort of uh, uh, drives that those those species. One of the fascinating things about about human evolution is um, how how we got rid of that uh, of that process. It turns out something like thirty percent of um, 
of uh, infant mortality in gorillas and chimpanzees uh, is thought to be due to infanticide. That's an enormously large number. And, and humans uh, do lots of uh, 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 terrible things, and actually males are responsible for more violent crimes. Uh, but uh, humans... Do, don't, human males don't do this. They don't uh, murder babies for their own sexual advantage. And that transformation is, uh, I think, really fundamental to human evolution. And uh, uh, I propose in the book that it occurred through, through female mate choice in, our, in this uh, millions of years since ancestry, our common ancestry with chimpanzees. Uh, females selecting for those males, uh, perhaps with uh, body sizes more similar to theirs, or with reduced uh, reduced canine weapons or with uh, behaviors that were more uh, socially compatible uh, could transform the species into one that did not murder its babies that, but cared for them. And that transformation is, a, is, a, is, a, is an amazing thing about human biology. And I think it's something um, that was critical to human evolution and it's something that came about through uh, female mate choice, which is, uh, usually has no role in our uh, current literature on the evolution of humans. So you're saying this, uh, you're hypothesizing this is, did not come by natural selection, but by aesthetic sexual selection. Yes, exactly. And, and in, in particular, by preferring uh, uh, males that were, uh, you know, compatible with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with family life, uh, with not, uh, with not, um, uh, 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 murdering babies, you know, uh, it's not surprising. You know, the average uh, 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 gorilla or chimpanzee male is uh, a, a sort of a, a homicidal uh, maniac just waiting for his moment, right, uh, when he can politically uh, take advantage of it. Um, that's not what men are like. And that, and in order to understand how you would transform uh, individuals in that way and end up with a very social species with lots of cooperative behavior, et cetera. How would you get there? And, and I think one way you get there is to, is to ask who benefits uh, from this. And the individuals benefit are, are moms and, uh, and, and, and their offspring. And I think that's uh, probably how it came about. What, uh, we just have about uh, five minutes left in the conversation. Uh, what are other implications that we haven't talked about here from this idea that you, you want to, to be discussed more? I guess you would hope this would be take off more aesthetic selection. Yeah, well, really, I'm hoping to, to uh, create a conversation uh, in the culture at large uh, that, uh, that, uh, that um, uh, will affect the science as well, right? Uh, so there, there, there are many. Uh, I think, for example, this implies that, uh, that um, uh, aesthetic philosophy or art museums and pop music and fashion pages of the magazines are not the only places where aesthetics matters, right? That, that aesthetics, that idea of uh, animals pursuing what they like, um, has shaped the world in a profound way. Everything from fruits and flowers to bird songs have been influenced by this. And that implies that, that science isn't an isolated uh, endeavor, uh, merely practical, but that uh, there's something uh, deeply in common between human experience of, of beauty and, uh, and uh, what happens in the natural world. What uh, this takes us a little kind of on a side trip, but but I'm interested. Um, what's what's the most fascinating bird you've ever studied? Well, I've been on lots of continents, and uh, uh, my children would cringe if I said this. But it's a little bit like picking your favorite child, you know. <laughs> <laughs> really, you really you spend months or weeks with, with uh, studying individual uh, species of birds. You really get you really get attached to them. But uh, um, uh, you know, uh, the, the birds like the oil bird in South America, one of the more bizarre birds. It's a nocturnal frugivore. Eats fruit, uh, palm fruits, and uh, and um, and avocado, tiny avocado fruits in the jungles, but it nests in caves and it flies around at night. Uh, it actually has a primitive kind of sonar, like a bat, where it makes clicks and can navigate around deeply in, within caves. So that's certainly one of the most bizarre birds <laughs> on the planet. And uh, I would recommend if anyone gets a chance to see an oil bird cave in the Andes, uh, you should go. It's a, it's a transformative experience. Uh, penguins in, 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 in Antarctica are also uh, spectacular. Uh, their lives at sea and then coming, 
you know, to land, to breed in only a few months of the year. Uh, tremendous uh, and, and fascinating uh, birds. You know, a lot of my work, other work in biology, has been uh, around the dinosaur origin of birds. Uh, and so uh, birds are living dinosaurs. They're not just from the dinosaurs. They're still dinosaurs. <laughs> and, they're, and, uh, they're, uh, and so I really uh, love that aspect of, uh, of, uh, of studying them and knowing them as, uh, as uh, the planet's uh, diverse dinosaurs. So bird, birds are the remnants, you're saying? Yeah, no, not not even remnants. They're 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 highly successful group of dinosaurs, right? Mm. They've they've been able to uh, fly into all different kinds of niches. So I think they're extremely successful. Uh, perhaps they are, without a doubt, the most successful dinosaurs. Uh, not by body mass, but certainly by diversity. Uh, they've uh, evolved and 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 around the planet and on every continent and are uh, 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 deeply uh, deeply successful group. So you're a, a biologist, an ornithologist, scientist, um, also a longtime bird watcher. That's where I want to end this. What uh, do you still? Does one color the other? Are you able to enjoy, uh, you know, just going out and and seeing a new bird as as a oh, birder? <laughs> as I said, I was out in the uh, in the in the in the. Uh, uh, cascades uh, looking for uh, w- uh, whitehead woodpecker just uh, two days ago. <laughs> so yes, and I love that feedback loop between the uh, the pursuit, the experience of the beauty of birds, and the science of the beauty of birds. Um, and uh, you know uh, uh, that first excitement that got me into this uh, all those years ago still alive in uh in in my work and it, 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 day by day so uh it's you know we get goosebumps here in the lab uh you know once a week with the exciting implications of what we're studying and uh uh that certainly is a good sign to me that i'm uh, uh on the right track i'm doing the right work <laughs> it's a, uh it's a it's a rewarding way to uh to 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 to, to do research Oh, we've reached the end of our time. Richard Prom is William Robertson, co-professor of ornithology at Yale University, author uh, most recently of The Evolution of Beauty, How Darwin's Forgotten Theory of Mate Choice Shapes the Animal World and Us. And you can uh, find more about him at prumlab.yale.edu. Uh, Dr. Prom, thank you so much. Interesting discussion. Thank you, Tom. That was a, uh, it was a, del- a great time. Uh, thanks so much for your interest. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Warm summer evenings have arrived and it's time to head outdoors for parties on the patio. And we've got the perfect soundtrack for your gathering. Jamaican reggae, Congolese sukus, and Caribbean zouk for dancing or just hanging out. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for Summer Party, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. I'm Christy Aachen, one of the Access Utah producers for Utah Public Radio. We produce extraordinary shows for our UPR community, following fascinating ideas, important issues, and compelling stories. Access Utah is also a program that listens to you. If you have comments, story ideas, or questions for any of us, we'd love to hear them. Please email us at upraccess at gmail.com or call us at 1-800-826-1495. You can also share ideas with us on social media. Follow and post on our Access Utah Facebook and Twitter page. Just be sure to include the hashtag IMUPR. And thank you for listening. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and UPR.org.